Amen. This evening we're going to talk about the topic of the wisdom of God in the person of Christ. Um, People in our modern world love information. They call this the information age. Sometimes it seems that they're not exactly too sure about what to do with the information that they have, but they do love it. Uh, We pass laws to make it mandatory for every child to attend school in the pursuit of information. Uh, We make it impossible for people to work in any number of different professions without passing a certification to be licensed, uh, to be an electrician or a counselor or a hairdresser or an attorney, any number of different areas, there are hundreds, which really doesn't guarantee their ability to perform the necessary tasks to that particular field, but it does mean that they have memorized a lot of information to be able to pass those tests and to be certified by the particular state that they live in. Um, we, there, there are game shows dedicated to information on television and some on the Internet even, actually. Uh, Jeopardy, The Chase, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, The Cash Cab, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? That's my favorite. I like that one. Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Really? It's, it's widely held that it to, a completed co- college education has got to be the beginning of any successful life. People idolize information. You hear all the time that information is power. Have you heard that before? I have heard information is power. I really think you might be more accurate to say that information is responsibility. If you have information, then you're responsible for that information, especially if it's true, if it's false information, Lord help you. Let me suggest to you that information is only powerful when it is used appropriately and responsibly. And so the using of information or knowing how to use information becomes a really important thing. Knowing how to use information is what the Bible calls wisdom. Knowing how to use information. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if, let's see, if the fear of the Lord is where real knowledge starts, it's more than just simple information. Just like the fear of the Lord is more than just fear. Fear of the Lord is an appropriate regard for the Lord that shows up in the way that people live, everything they do, even the way that they think. If you have the fear of the Lord, the way that you think is affected by that. How do you regard the Lord in your life? You personally. You ever think about that? How do I regard the Lord? How do I fear the Lord in the way that I live? Well, obviously, you go to church for one thing. And I mean, that's not the whole package, but it's a good start. You fear the Lord by going to church. Especially if you're working at vacation Bible school here during the day, you're probably dog tired right about now. If I see you fall asleep, I won't say a word. How do you fear the Lord? How do you regard him in your life? Basically, I regard the Lord when I keep his word. John 13, 17 says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Doing what the scripture says can seem complicated, but really it's just a step-by-step process. I kind of feel like, for my life personally, zeroing on on the the way that I I fear the Lord, I regard the Lord in my life, is really the purpose of my life. And with that in mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, for as long as I live, that's why I'm here. I'm learning how to regard the Lord in the way that I live, the things I do. And obviously, one day at a time. Some days are better than others. As long as I'm breathing, that's what I'm going to do. What does an appropriate regard for the Lord look like? Well, that's a little simpler It looks like Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus breathed, walked, ate, listened, drank. And most importantly, Jesus spoke in the fear of the Lord with an appropriate regard for who God is. And if knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord and wisdom 
is the understanding of what we should do with knowledge, then Jesus is that pattern. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom in all you're getting. Get understanding. We could say safely that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Actually, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that he is wisdom, the wisdom of God for us and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Tonight, we're going to look into the idea of God's wisdom providing direction and understanding for what we are to do with what it is that God has given us. We want to look at the words of Jesus as the expression of that wisdom. And we're going to do it in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible handy, open it up to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. The background of Luke 16, uh, Jesus is in the home stretch of his earthly ministry. He's preparing uh, for his final trip up to the city of Jerusalem, which will start uh, in the beginning of chapter 17. As Jesus approaches the hour for which he has come, the way he describes it throughout the Gospels, I imagine that there's some urgency that is working inside of him. He has only so many hours to speak the truth of God's wisdom to these people that he loves so desperately. Just like us, we have only so many hours to bless the people that we love in our lives. The thing, the difference, of course, is that Jesus knows when Passover is coming. He knows how long that he's got. And we don't know exactly. Some of us are going to be surprised by when we leave here, especially if we go in the rapture. That will be a big surprise. You know, we'll all take off together and the Lord knows. But we have a desire to care for those who are in need and to walk the path that the Lord has set before us. And again, the difference being that Jesus sees his finish line like a house on fire. We don't see things all that clearly. Sometimes we have trouble seeing it all. The account here in chapter 16 is the continuation of Jesus' ministry to a multitude of people who are following him on the east side of the Jordan River, on the other side of Jericho there, in an area called Perea. And it tells us, it really begins in about uh, chapter 14. Jesus starts off chapter 16 with a parable, verses 1 through 8. And let's look at that parable. Chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, that I may receive, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Important for us whenever we run across a parable in the scripture to remind ourselves how a parable works. A parable is literally... Uh, it's a device intended to illustrate one specific idea, one central idea. People get into trouble, theologically speaking, by attaching all sorts of significance to every little detail in the parable, and that can be a big problem. If you listen to teachers on the radio, they like to do that all the time. The exception to that would be if Jesus goes through the parable and himself 
he identifies specific issues and provides understanding about their meaning, like in the parable of the sower that you find in Matthew chapter 13 and also uh, in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus goes through the parable and then he goes through and explains every detail in verses 13 through 20. In Mark 4.13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And he's indicating there that there are elements of the parable of the sower and understanding it that make it possible for you to apply those ideas to other parables as well. It's called expositional consistency. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, after the parable of the sower, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear. I'm, I'm sure the Lord would say the same thing of us. We should be really grateful. Do you ever think about that? How amazing it is that you have the Bible, that you can read the words of these men that the Holy Spirit of God inspired and really receive and sometimes it's just kind of powerfully evident that it is the Spirit of God speaking to you in the Scripture. What an amazing thing that is. And how grateful we should be for all that the Lord has done for us. A parable is intended to illustrate one particular idea. And to get that, we need to understand the situation of the parable. This parable is known as the parable of the unjust steward. A steward is a man that manages the affairs of a wealthy landowner. In the parable, the steward, this manager, he's accused of mismanagement. Doesn't give us any details. We don't know. The, uh, he says, it says rather, that he was wasting his master's good. The landowner, referred to as the master, calls him in. In verse 2, what is this I'm hearing about you? Give an account of your stewardship. You're done. You can no longer be a steward into discussion. There's no discussion, really. In verse 3, the guy flips out. What am I going to do? His options are slim and none. I can't dig, he says. And we don't know if that's actually true. Not important. One central idea. I, he can't dig. He's ashamed to beg. Interesting, I was reading a commentator. He says, you know, this is the only positive thing it says anywhere in this parable about this guy. He's ashamed to beg. That's a positive thing. Good for him. In verse 4, he comes up with an interesting idea to be received into the houses of his master's debtors. Again, the people who owe money to his master. So in verses 5 through 7, what he does is with his authority as steward, still, he writes off a little less than half of what these people owe his master. He just makes it disappear like they don't owe it anymore, okay? Which in the first century agricultural world, this would have come to a small fortune. This would have been a lot of money. The former steward's idea here is that he will, by defrauding his former master, provide for his retirement. He's going to be able to retire by this money he's ripping off his ex-boss for. And then finally, in verse 8, the master of the steward commends him. Says, what a smart guy. It's because he has dealt shrewdly. He's crafty. He's ingenious, clever, quick-thinking even maybe intelligent, who knows, you know. But notice that the, the steward did wrong. I mean, even criminal, okay? And the master doesn't commend him for theft, but because he acted shrewdly. And that's the only thing. So this is the parable. In the second half of verse 8, if you look there, we have Jesus begins his explanation and his instruction to his disciples. Notice back in verse 1, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is talking to the disciples. Now, there's a multitude of people there. There's a ton of people, maybe even thousands. And later on, we'll get into some of the specifics. There are religious leaders. There are Pharisees, lawyers, experts in the law of Moses that are there as present as well. So here in the second part, starting at verse 8, the second part of verse 8, we have Jesus' instruction to his disciples. So 8b, it says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Two groups of people. 
The sons of this world and the sons of light. The sons of this world would be those people that are divorced from their father in heaven. People that are not connected to God. Okay? The sons of this world would be people that are described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. They've been blinded. Spiritual blindness. They do not believe in the Lord. They do not follow him. On the other hand, we have the sons of light. That would be those who are attached to James 1.17, the father of lights, from which comes every good gift. Sons of light and the father of lights, James 1.17. Unfortunately, what Jesus is saying here is that the sons of this world are more shrewd. That is, they display more ingenuity at achieving their purposes. And I think, to be honest and fair, we surely see that in the Western world where so much of the church has been swallowed up with complacency. Now, to be honest, I kind of... um, I don't see you folks in that category at all. I mean, a, a church where we have... A hundred people working five days a week to bless and care for young people. These are not people who are afraid of commitment. Uh, people who who uh, come out to church on a Thursday night. You know, I really expected to see many fewer people here tonight because of the activity of the church this week. But you guys are devoted to the Lord and dedicated. And I think, reasonably speaking, the percentages of people that we have involved in week to week ministry activity here at this church is far and above, far and away above the average for people who are involved in church activity. People, people in the church are largely complacent. Would you ask somebody, would you like to get involved in ministry? Well, you know, I've been born again for many years now and I'm pretty busy. Hey, do you know anybody who's not busy? Everybody I know is busy, even if it's just to, you know, to binge watch television series. They're busy. They've got things on their schedule. They're going, going, going. You wouldn't like to step out in some area and serve the Lord, maybe get out of your comfort zone a little. For instance, like Vacation Bible School, that's definitely that's outside your comfort zone, I guarantee you. Many people in the Western world would much rather give money than involve themselves in a ministry effort. And trust me, people are very attached to their money. Now people, the people Jesus is speaking to here, his disciples, were a little different. Uh, Disciples are a group of people that most of them, I would think, had sacrificed personally to follow Jesus around the countryside. These were not people that had money, in spite of what the word of faith people say, you know, tell us that the 12 disciples were wealthy men. And granted, James, John, Andrew, and Peter were fishermen. They had their own businesses. They owned boats. I wonder how many of you here tonight who own your own businesses feel like you're wealthy people. You know, or do you maybe just work 24 hours a day and pay higher taxes? Maybe that might be it. Jesus tells, tells us the sons of this world are more shrewd. And so Jesus gives us his instruction in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Folks, we are approaching eternity at a very consistent rate of 24 hours every day. We are getting 24 hours closer to eternity Every day. We don't know exactly when it is going to happen. For every one of us in this room, it could be a slightly different hour and day. Or again, if the rapture takes place in the near future, which is very possible, a whole bunch of people are going to all fall into eternity at the same moment. Every day it gets closer. And the things that we do in this world have an eternal significance. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have to believe that the things that I do from the moment I get out of bed in the morning till the time that I go to sleep at night, 
and even sometimes probably in my dreams, the things, don't you love it when you do something really cool in your dreams, like share the gospel with people? And you wake up, I am a believer. It's so hot. It's just, you know, it's great. Or it's somebody, you know, there's some temptation to do something terrible, and you're like, oh, I can't do that. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Things that I do every day have an eternal significance. They really do. And sometimes we're so busy, we get so caught up that we miss that. We forget about that. It is with that in mind that Jesus exhorts us, sort of playing off the situation of the parable. He says in verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. And the idea here is that we should use the things that are valued here in this world to serve the Lord's purpose for our benefit in eternity. Things like what? He says here that when you fail, you may receive, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Again, we're all leaving this world sooner or later. Make no mistake, every one of us. And this parable is a reinforcement of that idea. Uh, the same idea that Jesus shared in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where he said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Same principle in a different place. The problem is, one of the problems, there are a lot of them. We're very attached to the things of this world. They're very appealing to us. You know, uh, you ever watch a guy turn and follow a car going down the street, car grows, goes, and if you haven't seen that happen, that just means that the right car hasn't driven down the street when you're standing with a particular guy because they will, they will follow. It works. We're all tempted every day in little ways and in big ways to make our lives about this world, to make this world our kingdom. And that temptation will be with us until the very end in one, one way or another. It's interesting to me that Jesus uses these particular words here in verse 9. That when you fail, when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And the truth is, folks, we do fail in all kinds of ways. It is what we do as people. Maybe even, especially as believers, we fail. We come short. We fall short of what we, we know the Lord's purpose to be for us. I got to tell you, I have never been so aware of my many failures until I became a Christian. I used to think I was pretty awesome. And if you had met me, I would have told you about how awesome I was. And then I became a believer in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, I wasn't nearly so awesome anymore. All my awesomeness kind of got sucked out the window somewhere. You know, it was just me all by myself for who I, I really am. You'd think I would get better at this, but the reality is it doesn't seem to be the case. I offend people unintentionally. I offend the Lord by the things I do and the things that I say. Now, maybe you none of you guys have this experience in your life. If so, I apologize. But this is what I do. And especially, I have to tell you, it's especially painful to me when I offend people at church because I care about these people. I care about what they think about me and I care about them because they belong to Jesus. And if I'm going to offend people, I'd much rather offend somebody who doesn't belong to Jesus. But the reality is I don't want to offend anybody at all. I want, I want to attract people to the truth of Christ. But the reality is I do offend people. And so if you're out there tonight and I've offended you, please consider this my apology to you. I am sorry. And if you need to talk to me about it, please go for it. Let me know. And, and, and I will try and clarify and, and not be offensive in that way anymore. The really amazing and wonderful thing is how forgiving the Lord is to overlook all of our shortcomings and to continue to allow us to be his family. Let me tell you, 
If I was God, I would have been done with me a long time ago. I, that's the truth, you know. It's interesting. I heard a pastor say one time, you know, if, if all you people knew how evil I was, you wouldn't be here sitting here listening to me tonight. And then they all laughed. And he said, well, you know, hey, listen, if I knew how bad you were, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. God is faithful. And he is the one who knows who we really are. He knows who we really are. He, he sees all of our faults. And aren't you glad he is so, it is his desire. It's his, his DNA to be forgiving towards us. And to keep us in his family. The idea that he is bringing to our attention here is that as we surrender the things that we value, we surrender them to the Lord for his purpose, not our purpose. Because obviously all the things I have, I have a purpose for. I have an end goal, you know. There are things I'd like to do around the house, fix it up, make it into the place, and then it's all going to burn. You know, what's up with that? And it's the truth. It really is. It's all going to turn to garbage. You know, I want to get my car painted, make it all perfect. So why? I can park it at the supermarket and some guy can open his door and it's going to happen. It really is kind of frustrating. But the Lord's idea is that I would surrender the things of my life, the things in this world that are valuable in this world, into his hands to give them to him. Because when I do that, when I surrender them for his purpose, whatever that might be, we are actually surrendering ourselves into his hands one piece at a time. We're giving up on our dreams and our plans and our hopes and the things that we had hoped. One day maybe this will happen. And we, we hand that over to him. We give it over to him. You know, sometimes if the plan and the dream and the hope that you had for your life, if that's from the Lord, if you give it up to him, he may just turn around and give it back to you. He may just bless you with it because he likes to do that. In amazing ways. We are giving up on this world as our home. And when we give up on this world. Because of Christ's presence in our lives. There is a promise for us. That we will be received into an everlasting home. Which is what we really want. It's what we really want. John 12.25 says. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And if this is really true, we, folks, as the disciples of Jesus, we should be motivated. Certainly more motivated than the sons of this world who will do anything for the promise of this world. And what, what is the promise of this world anyway, you know? What is it? Oh, that's right. You're going to die and you can take nothing with you. And that, by the way, is the really good part. It gets worse from there. That is the promise of this world. Jesus gives us some detail about what the sons of light should be about in verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Now, Jesus is not suggesting here that we earn the privilege to do great things by our faithfulness in small things. It's really just an observation of a person that is faithful, a person who attends to detail, someone who is motivated by their fear of the Lord. They take care of business. They will be faithful, whether the task is small or great. At the same time, a person that is unjust, and that word unjust in the Greek can also be translated deceitful, duplicitous, somebody who is underhanded and, and deceiving in a small thing, will sooner or later be unjust in a great thing. Because there is the absence of a real boundary in their life. And we see this all the time, don't we, in the lives of people. He goes on in verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who, who will commit to you, to your trust, the true riches? 
And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give to you what is your own? Wonderful thought. The true riches. You see, that's eternity. That's what we're looking forward. The things that we look at in this world, you know, the, the scripture tells us that this world is a shadow of the things to come, the shadow of eternity. And, and the things that, you know, like I mentioned before, car driving down the street. There are certain cars that will drive down the street just kind of take my breath away. Be like, oh my goodness, look at that. I would not want that, of course, but I mean, I'm lying, right? I am. What would I do with a Bentley? Oh my gosh, you know. Can you imagine the looks I'd get at church, you know, and pull up in a convertible? Yeah, it's, it's, I'd have to lie. It belongs to my friend, my father-in-law. This is his car. You know, no way. It's ridiculous. But folks, compared to the true riches that the Lord intends for you, there is no comparison in this place. There is nothing in this world. There is nothing that could ever compare with what the Lord intends to bless you with in his presence. God is the one and only authority in deciding the situation in the lives of people. Psalm 75 verse 6 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. One of my favorite scriptures, the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah says, No one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to be hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set him among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength no man shall prevail. God knows the truth of who we are. And he knows the effort that we put forth in any given situation. Better than we do. Better than we do. We don't always see things as objectively as we think we do. How we try or do not try to do the right thing, those things are, are not without significance in the sight of God. As he always does, Jesus really zeroes in here on the motive, the central issue why we do what we do. It boils down to what he explains as a divided loyalty in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon meaning money or riches, wealth. That may seem a little extreme to you when I read this. You may think to yourself, well, I don't know. I think I could have two masters. I think I could love God and also really like money a lot. You know, and, and we imagine in our minds, and, and honestly, we've kind of been programmed to do this by our culture. People carry around in their thinking mutually exclusive ideas that cannot exist in the same world, and they think that they believe both of them at the same time, when you actually cannot. Well, yeah, if you talk to people on the street, we used to do a, a really interesting uh, form of evangelism where you ask people questions. And you would go up to people and go through a series of questions. What do you think about this? Who is Jesus to you? Do you believe in, in uh, uh, heaven or hell? No, no, I don't believe in heaven or hell. And then you'd ask them, if you died today, what would happen to you? And they'd say, well, I'd go to heaven. 
I kid you not. I'm absolutely serious. And, and, you know, the system tells you, don't go back, don't embarrass them, don't make them feel dumb. You know, they just told you they don't believe in heaven and hell, and then they told you they're going to go to heaven. People think like this. They really do. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, absolutely. Is there hell? No, no hell. No hell. You know, it's, it's kind of fascinating. You may think that you could be faithful to all kinds of different issues without conflict. But if you really think about what Jesus says, it is true. Like, like just about everything Jesus says is really true. When you know what God wants you to do and you choose another course, what does the prophet Nathan say to David in 1 Samuel 12? Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Strong words. God doesn't say things that strongly to much, many other people. But consider, David knew who God was. And David knew what was right. And he knew what was wrong. And for him, the offense that he had done was a huge thing. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? That's exactly what it is. If I choose another authority to follow when I know God's direction, I have despised the word of God. I can't do that. I cannot do that. The idea of money moving people to contradict God's purpose in their lives is really, it's kind of terrifying to me. I, I really don't think people realize what money is all about. Like, like a lot of things, people are confused. People think, people really believe this, and you may be one of them. I apologize. If I had money, all my troubles would disappear. If I had money, all my troubles would be gone. And that may be true. But then they'd be replaced by a whole bunch of new troubles that you're absolutely unequipped to deal with. In a moment of time like that, bam, you'd get a whole world of new troubles that you never imagined before. We need to realize God made our troubles for us. They are custom tailored. They're specific. Would you like to have my problems? You, you don't. See, smart man. That's right. And you know what? I don't want your problems either. I want the problems God made for me. Because I need those problems. God's trying to help me sort through my foolishness and deal with my life and be the person that he's intended me to be. Now, I grant it. I'll grant you. Sometimes your problems seem like they're a little bit more than you can deal with. You know, and for some people, often and regularly, unfortunately, God help you. You know, this is the reality of life. But you've got to realize God has called you. He has called you to deal with those issues. This is part of his purpose at work in your life. It's a very difficult thing to do good with money. It may look easy. Don't believe it. On the other hand, you can make a huge mess out of just about anything with a lot of money in nothing flat. Look at the governments of the world. If you're interested, I've got an article, political article, it's not Christian, about how giving money to foreign governments makes the situation of nations worse. Consistently, in almost every culture of the world, to throw money at a problem makes it worse and exacerbates the situation. Money can make you lazy. Money can make you wasteful. It can affect your sensibilities. It can affect your judgment. Money has tremendous power to make you selfish. Money can make people see themselves as more deserving than others. Money, like authority and power, are corrosive. They are debilitating. It'll change and affect you in ways that you couldn't have begin to imagine. And most people think, oh, you know, it wouldn't affect me like that. I, I think I could handle it. At least I'd like to try. That's, that's the perspective. People always want to see themselves as the exception to the rule. When you talk to a person that does not see themselves as the exception to the world rule, you're, you're talking to a wise person. And if they're a believer, they have some maturity under their belt. 
they realize that what the scripture warns applies to them first and to everybody else as well. That's wisdom. That's real wisdom. Although Jesus is speaking to his disciples here again, as we mentioned before, there are others present. And they did not like the things that Jesus was saying about money, implying that money had evil influences and that you couldn't love God and money at the same time. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they derided him. Now, the situation of the Pharisees, Pharisees began as a religious group about 200 years prior to this, the ministry of Jesus. The name Pharisee means the sanctified guys. No, not really. It means, it means the, those set apart. That's what it kind of, it's a holy name. Those guys who are set apart to God. But, you know, kind of modern translation, the sanctified guys. Um, that's that's who, they, who they were. Uh, they cons- were considered by most the Jewish people in the first century of the day as the rightful holders, the inheritors of Moses' rabbinical authority. Most of the common Jewish people kind of looked down on the Sadducees because it was pretty obvious they were in it for the money and that they were in political power. And plus, they, they were not respected, by and large, by most of the Jewish people. So the, the Pharisees were held up uh, to some scrutiny. Um, like most Jewish people, the Pharisees held that if you were pleasing to God, if your life was pleasing to God, if God truly loved you, he would make you rich. He would make you wealthy. They believed this. And so wealth was looked upon in the Jewish culture as a blessing of the Lord. I mean, Abraham was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. Solomon was really rich. Yeah, but he had a thousand wives. There's a caveat on there. He had a problem. Um, So understandably... When Jesus starts to make these statements about money, putting people in a divided loyalty, uh, they, they became upset. In verse 13, you cannot serve God and mammon. Um, it's interesting, back where we read verse 14, it says that they derided to him. Now that, that means that they gave him no account. They, they disparaged. They set aside his remarks as, Foolish, you know, this hick guy from Galilee. He didn't know what he's talking about. The word derided in the Greek language really means to to point your nose up in the air. (laughs) They they became very snobbish with him and were not going to put up with the things that he was saying. They put their noses up in the air towards Jesus. Now, the word that we're using here, the word mammon, meaning money or wealth, we get it in the English language from the Middle English word, but it's very similar to an Aramaic word that they likely would have used, that Jesus would have used here. The Pharisees listened patiently in the previous chapter, in chapter 15, to three out of four parables that were all targeted specifically at them, and they had kind of held their peace patiently, but they had apparently reached their limit here. They're not going to take any more. And so they, they make their complaint. They derided Jesus. Uh, again, the word means to turn up the nose. Uh, you, you can imagine the kind of abuse that Jesus suffered with these people throughout the three years of his ministry. And being from Galilee, not being educated at the yeshiva like these guys were. Uh, you listen to the words of the Pharisees through the Gospels. You kind of get a feel that their attitude towards Jesus was very dismissive, with the exception maybe of Nicodemus. And when Jesus said something that they considered astute or on, on point, they almost sound shocked. In, in Luke chapter 20, verse 39, after Jesus had rebuked the Sadducees, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, You've spoken well. Like, my goodness, you know, like, what have they been listening to all this time? But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Noticing the attitude of the Pharisees, Jesus never won to ignore a challenge because he is, again, he's our example. He's motivated. He knows even if nobody else does, the time is short. And some of these Pharisees may may well come to faith in the days to come after his death and resurrection. 
some of them surely did. So in verses 15 through 18, we have Jesus' instruction to the Pharisees. In verse 15, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This verse is something we would do well to remember. Jesus gives them three pieces of information in this verse. You are those who justify yourselves before men. The habit of all humankind, and it's utterly lacking in real value other than to make people feel comfortable with themselves. People think I'm great. So what about how many people are there in the world that have any kind of real idea of the kind of person I truly am? I can count them on one hand. Maybe. Most people that I know have no real depth of understanding of who I am as a person. If they thought I was the greatest person, it really doesn't, it doesn't carry any weight. This is why being famous is of such a negligible benefit. It doesn't help you to be famous. People idolize the idea, oh, it's famous, they become famous, and they're like, this is like eating cardboard. There's nothing to it. These people don't know who you are. This is why Demi Lovato overdosed on heroin two days ago. She's famous and doesn't get it. It's not going to fix you. It's not going to change you. And the people who chase you down the street wanting an autograph, they don't know who you are. They don't know the first thing about you. It's meaningless. You are those who justify yourself before men. If you are a fortunate person with integrity, you may have some kind of an idea of who you are as a person. If you're a believer, then I know that the Holy Spirit is telling you. And that really is the second point Jesus makes here. Secondly, God knows your heart. It doesn't matter one iota how many million people think I'm the greatest. God alone knows who I am. Yes, even better than I do. And there are more than a few people out there who have bought into their own lies. 2 Corinthians 13.5 challenges us. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? And so we should because we are responsible to him. This idea of accountability to God is more than any other single issue. It is the thing that the intellectual world, the world we live in, folks, has launched itself into a wholesale rebellion, grasping at any kind of hope to escape the idea of accountability to God, which is unavoidable. You cannot get away from accountability to God, but they've done everything in the world to try and do it, so much so to make huge institutions and universities to promote the idea that we are not accountable to God. Folks, to this very hour, there is a group of geneticists that published an article in May. Okay? These geneticists were involved in a massive research project tracking mitochondrial DNA. DNA right there. Now, I don't know what you know about DNA, but inside of every gene, there's a nucleus. And it's called the mitochondria. And it doesn't change from one generation to another. And for some reason, you can trace it back to where it came from. There's at least one person here tonight that knows about this. You can trace it back. And not only can you trace it back from generation to generation to generation from where it came from, but you can tell somehow how long it took. These guys studied the DNA of 100,000 animals and human species. And in their report that they published in May, this is a major university in the United States and in England, they came to the conclusion that virtually every species of animal and the humans on this lovely planet have their beginning at exactly the same time, somewhere less than 200,000 years ago. And this is not up for debate. There's no wiggle room in this. It's absolute science. It can be proven in a laboratory. What does that mean? What it means is that evolution is an absolute hoax. An absolute hoax. Don't expect to see this in the media anytime soon. You're not gonna. If you'd like an article, I can show you a couple. But you're not gonna find them. 
and nobody's going to talk about it on the television, and it's not going to show up in grammar schools or middle schools or probably not in high schools. And in universities, they'll talk about it in back rooms in very hushed tones. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And what's more important, what people think. What's more important, what people think or what God thinks? Oh, wait a minute. God doesn't think. I don't know if you know this or not. God doesn't think. He just knows. God does not consider things. He doesn't figure them out. He knows. Obviously, the opinion of people in this world has no value compared to the perspective of God. One is totally unimportant. The other is all important. And then the ability to understand real value as far as the world's concerned. Things that are highly esteemed among men all share a common opinion in the presence of God. They are an abomination. A good thing for us not to forget. Jesus continues with some spiritual insight for these Pharisees. And these men are supposed to be experts in spiritual things. Look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Jesus is here sharing things that are way beyond their understanding. They would have no way of making sense of the statement. The law and the prophets were until John. Jesus is not stating that the law is in any way less important than it was before John the Baptist, John the son of Zechariah, but he is stating that there has been a change, that John is the last of the prophets, and that his ministry, the ministry of Jesus, is about to change the world and Judaism forever. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, something the Pharisees, again, may have missed. Jesus preached to the multitudes. He sent out the 12, two by two, in all the cities of the Jews. He sent out 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10, two by two, preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. John Knox translated that verse saying, all who will press their way into the kingdom of God. All who will. Certainly they can't deny the image. He's been surrounded by a multitude all through this section from chapter 13 on. And yet, for some reason, they can't see what's happening. They don't understand the change, or maybe they don't want to understand the change. Luke 12, 56 says, Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the time? And because he really does care about these guys, they're sticking their noses up in the air at him. He doesn't want them to misunderstand what he's speaking or that think that he's speaking against the scripture somehow. So in verse 7, he clarifies for their benefit in verse 17. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle. That would be like a tiny uh, exclamation point uh, of the law to fail. Folks, for us, the scripture is the fixed point of reference. It is our uh, navigating lighthouse. It's the plumb line by which we're able with certainty to determine where we are and where we're going. It's the roadmap that the Lord has provided for us to look at our world with wisdom from above, to look at ourselves and understand the truth of who we are and what we need to do to seek the Lord's purpose. Paul writes to the Corinthians some maybe 25 years later, 2 Corinthians 3.15, says, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And that mirror is a reference to the Word of God, the Scripture. How does that work? By the Word of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus cares for the critics that justify themselves at any cost, He has one more word for them. One that they need to hear now that He has their full attention in verse 18. 
He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, we don't really know why Jesus chose this issue to punctuate his words here. Isn't that interesting? There's nothing previously in the parable or any of his statements leading up to it. And then out of nowhere, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. We don't get to know the situation of the Pharisees that he was speaking to. The Holy Spirit knew. And as he always does, he uses a situation of life to illustrate the issue. We know for a fact that the most difficult place to live the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is in your own home and with your own family. Much easier with people you see eight hours a day or six hours a day or a couple hours every week. You know, everybody looks like a great Christian at church. We clean up pretty good. But in front of your family, you know, it's a whole nother story. We know that the most difficult place on earth, and especially in a marriage, where basically, you know, your partner knows all of your faults, or most of them anyway. I was talking to Pastor Henry today about the marriage ministry meeting coming up this Saturday, and their topic is communication. And I asked if the Lord had given he and Gloria any new perspective on communication. I don't really remember his exact words, but it was something to the effect of, you know, you'd think that being married almost 40 years and doing marriage counseling for most of that time, you'd pretty much know it all. And that is not the case. That is certainly, I mean, there is a lot to know and a lot to learn. And God is showing us new things all the time. God is always working on some new wrinkle. And then, of course, if you do it long enough, they become real wrinkles at the same time. But what if you don't have the Lord? What if you don't have a relationship with the Lord? Or what if you're not listening as you should be? The Pharisees, folks, were notoriously permissive concerning things in which they had some personal interest. The example, of course, inheritance law and the practice of Corban and abandoning, not caring for their parents. They did these things. Folks, we need wisdom from God. And we need to be willing to listen. We need to be responsive to him. We need to spend time with him. We need to acknowledge our failings for what they are. To acknowledge before people is good. But to acknowledge before the Lord is, is essential. We need the eternal perspective to see our lives here in the context of God's purpose for us. Which, personally, I'm convinced God's purpose is a whole lot bigger than any of us can possibly imagine at this point. I mean, if you've been a believer for some years, let me ask you a question. You've been a believer for some years. Would you have believed what God has done in your life? And generally speaking, the answer is no. I would have laughed. I would not have thought it possible. Folks, God has so much more for you that he wants to do. And all we have to do is give him that opportunity one day at a time. These Pharisees, the Lord only knows what they did. But we know that they had every opportunity. Just like us every opportunity. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity just to look at your word this night, Lord, and Father, to give you that place in our lives that you deserve. And Lord, our prayer is that we would faithfully give you that place day by day by day. Father, that we would humble ourselves before you and allow your spirit, Lord, to do the work in, in us that you've intended Father, we want to be useful to you. We want to bless the people that we love. For however many days we have, we want to be a blessing and an encouragement. We want your spirit to do that work through us, Lord. 
And so we pray, help us, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, draw us close to yourself to hear your voice. If you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we're all praying together with our eyes, our hearts bowed before the Lord. If you don't know Christ and the Lord has spoken to your heart, you have a desire to give your life to, to the Lord tonight. You can do that. I'm going to pray a prayer as we close our service. And if you repeat, repeat that, that prayer after me, sincerely from your heart, the Lord will begin a work in your life, uh, which you, you will be amazed at what he can do. If it's your desire to give your life to Christ, pray this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life in Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.